Well, thank you so much, Nate, and uh, what a blessing it is to be led by our next generation in worship today. Wasn't that neat? Um, I don't know that Sam applies, though. Sam's not, Sam is the generation right now, right? And Junior maybe too, right? So Junior's getting older. Anyway, we'll take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16 this morning, and while you're turning there, let me just say thank you to Chris Delagula for uh, filling the pulpit last Sunday with his first ever sermon uh, from this pulpit at Lakeside Bible Church. What a blessing uh, I know that was to, to you. Uh, I couldn't think of a better person to address the issue of, of singing uh, than the one that God has called and raised up here at Lakeside to lead us into the presence of the Lord on a weekly basis to sing his praise. And so hopefully you were encouraged and challenged by that message. Uh, I wasn't because somehow the live stream didn't work and uh, we didn't get a recording of it. So I'll just have to trust your input. Like, just kidding, All right? Uh, no, I know I've heard many great uh, uh, reports and so... So grateful for Chris and that opportunity that he had. Well, let's look together this morning at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. It's a familiar passage, I assume, for most of us, but uh, trust that God will use this to stir us up by way of reminder today. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. He who gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity to uh, revisit a very familiar text, a text that is so foundational to who we are as a church and what we desire to be. And so, Lord, would your spirit move amongst us now and illuminate our minds to understand what is here and how it applies to each one of us and what our uh, role is um, in the building of this church. And so uh, just ask for you to be uh, glorified and honored uh, through our time together. We ask this uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I uh, told you, I was... uh, away last weekend, had the privilege of attending and preaching at the True Church Conference at Grace Life Church of the Shoals in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Uh, I never felt more like a Yankee than when I was in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And, uh, you know, these guys, uh, all these other speakers, man, they show up in their pickup trucks. They got guns. You know, they talked about their last bow hunting trip and uh, about the bush hog they have out, the, out at the property, and they get their inspiration for sermons when they're riding out on the bush hog. And, uh, you know, they say funny things in their sermons, like, if you get into sin in our church, we'll be on you like a duck on a June bug. And uh, I'm like, okay. Um, so I get up and I say, hey, guys, I don't know what I'm doing speaking here because um, 
You know, I don't own a truck, I don't own a gun, never shot nothing with a bow, uh, don't own a bush hog, uh, and, and I didn't know bugs or, uh, June, or uh, ducks ate June bugs. <laughs> but hey, we're like-minded when it comes to the things of God, right? The, the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the Church of God. And so um, it was a real blessing to be there. And uh, the goal of this annual conference is, is to encourage and equip pastors and church leaders uh, around the U.S. and really around the world who are striving to build true, biblically healthy churches. And that's kind of a tagline of, uh, of that church and, and their ministry, uh, talking about biblically healthy churches. And, and I was personally stirred up by the other preachers who were there, as well as the example. I was inspired by the example of, of Grace Life Church, which stimulated me to want to evaluate the spiritual health, health of our church. And so God brought to mind this passage, which I believe serves as a standard or benchmark of a biblically healthy church. Now, the book of Ephesians is all about the church. And that's why it was the first book I decided to preach through when we planted Lakeside 25 years ago this coming fall. I couldn't think of a better way to start a church than with a heavy dose of ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. And so in this foundational letter, Paul explained the mystery of the church that God, by his spirit, uh, had revealed to him and had entrusted him as a steward. And he talks about this um, in verse, chapter 2, verse 14, talking about how God made one or made both groups into one, talking about Jews and Gentiles uh, joining together as one new man um, the church, uh, verse 20, he talks about, verse 19, he talks about God's household, uh, where fellow citizens and saints are part of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He talks down in chapter 3, uh, verse 2, about this stewardship that had been given to him, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. What is this mystery? Uh, he says in... Uh, Verse 6, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then this kind of climaxes in the, the first half of the book here, ends with chapter 3, verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And then he goes on in chapter 4, and really the rest of the book He's exhorting the believers in Ephesus to live up what they had been called uh, to be a part of, and specifically in verses 3 through, three through 6, to be diligent to maintain the unity of the church. He says there in verse 3, uh, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were also called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then he went on to describe how Christ has given each one of us a, a spiritual gift to serve and build up the church. He says that in, in, in verses 7 and 8, that to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's um, gift. And so when we're faithful to use our gifts, then the result will be a strong, healthy, spiritually mature church, which he describes uh, in verses 11 through 16. Now, spiritual maturity is not always 
what a pastor or a church is aiming for. Seems like the, the focus of many pastors and churches is numeral, numerical growth rather than spiritual growth. And whenever pastors get together, the conversation typically at some point turns to the size of your church. Somebody's going to ask, hey, so how big is your church? I personally hate asking that question, and I hate answering that question. Uh, because while church growth strategies may result in your church growing in size, it may not necessarily grow your church in its likeness to Christ. But unfortunately, like everything else in our society, numbers seem to be the measure of success, whether it's the business world, the academic world, the sports world, so it is in the church world. The number of people who attend a church naturally becomes the measure of not only how successful a church is, but how successful a pastor is. But the true measure of a pastor's success or a church's success is not how many people are coming to the church, but how much the people are becoming more like Christ. A biblically healthy church will experience, I think, both numerical and spiritual growth. In other words, more and more people becoming more and more like Christ. You may be aware of this, but back in uh, 2000, Mark Dever, who's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., uh, wrote a very helpful book titled Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And it really spawned a movement the Nine Marks movement, and you can actually go on a website now and find uh, a church wherever you end up moving or go on vacation. Uh, you can find a church, a Nine Marks church in that Nine Marks network that you know uh, is committed to those Nine Marks uh, that he talks about in that book. But instead of focusing on, on church growth, which was so popular back then in the late 90s, early 2000, uh, he pointed instead uh, to the basic biblical principles for assessing and strengthening the health of the church. And he was one of the advocates for, rather than a church growth movement, we need a church health movement. And so I think that's exactly what Paul was doing here in this passage as well, because here in verses 11 through 16, we see, ironically enough, nine marks of a biblically healthy church. So let's look at these nine marks one at a time uh, in order to evaluate the health of this church. Number one, the first mark of a biblically healthy church is gifted leaders. Gifted leaders. Notice verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So Paul listed here four special gifts or gifted men that God gave the church for the benefit of every believer. And he began with apostles, which are those men who were originally commissioned by Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. There was two basic requirements for being an apostle. Number one, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection or the resurrected Christ. Number two, you had to be able to perform miracles which proved that you were God's true messenger. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 talks about the signs of an apostle. Hebrews 2, 4 talks about that as well. So you have apostles and you have prophets. Prophets were those men who were specially anointed by God as mouthpieces who received direct revelation from him and passed it on to the church. And so their task was to reveal God's will to his people before they had the New Testament. And that's why they said, thus says the Lord. What they spoke by the Holy Spirit was the word of God. And so you have the apostles and the prophets 
who served a special, unique role in the founding of the early church. We already read that in chapter 2, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And so once the foundation of the church was laid and the canon was completed, the the role of the apostles and prophets was no longer needed, and so so their unique ministry ended. And yet we're not left, though, without the benefits of these two significant gifts to the church. Everything they said, everything they did is recorded for us in the New Testament, And that's why the early church, Acts 2.42, says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And that's the task of the evangelists and the pastor teachers is to explain and apply the teaching of the apostles and prophets that we find here uh, in in the New Testament. Uh, The last two gifts really build on the foundation of the first two. So you've got number three, evangelists, Evangelists are, are, are those who are uniquely gifted by God to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers and lead them to faith in Christ. Now, every believer has a responsibility to share the gospel with others, but there are certain people who God has called to serve as itinerant preachers, who, who bring the gospel into new regions where people have never heard the gospel before, whether they're missionaries or church planners. Uh, sometimes they may serve uh, within a local church, emphasizing evangelism and training and equipping people to effectively share their faith with others. So you've got evangelists, but then you've got pastors and teachers, really pastor-teacher. Th- th- that Those two words are one grammatical un- unit in the Greek, which I think indicates that Paul didn't have two different people or roles in mind, but one person with a combination of these two different gifts, the the pastor-teacher gift. And so the vital role of a pastor-teacher is to shepherd God's flock by lovingly leading them and by faithfully feeding them. And so God sovereignly and chronologically provided the church with gifted men to first of all establish the foundation of the church, that was the apostles and prophets, to expand the church, that's the evangelists, and then to edify the church and equip the church, and that is the pastors and teachers. And so the point is simply this, without a gifted, qualified shepherding team, a church cannot and will not grow spiritually strong and healthy. So that's the first mark of a biblically healthy church is gifted leaders. Number two is equipped members. Equipped members. Notice verse 12. The Lord gave some as pastor teachers, there at the end of verse 11, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So the role of pastors and teachers is to provide people with everything they need to know to be useful in serving the Lord. Uh, Sometimes pastors end up doing everything because they're unwilling to train others to do it. Uh, Other times they end up doing everything because no one in the congregation is willing to do it. Uh, uh, Sadly, too many people come to church these days looking to be served rather than to serve. Very unlike Jesus who came to what? Serve, not to be served, Mark 10, 45. And thankfully, these are just 
stories I've heard and from books I've read. They're not my own personal experience where pastors, you know, wash the windows, they mow the lawn, they weed the flower, but they shovel the snow. They do everything while making the bulletins and trying to counsel and make all the hospital visits and the whole time trying to, um, you know, prepare for the next message. Now, again, I'm not implying that a pastor is above doing these things, but he should willingly delegate these tasks to others so that he will only do what only he can do. And others should willingly do these things to protect the pastor from uh, getting distracted and help him maintain his proper priorities of spending time with the Lord in prayer and preparing to speak to them on his behalf. I heard a guy say one time, to his pastor, he said, Pastor, let me do that. Let me do anything I can do uh, in the life of this church um, to take that off your plate because when I come to church on Sunday morning, I need to hear from God. And so I wanna make sure you get all the time you need to be in the word and prepare because I need to hear from God. Acts 6, 4 says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That was the commitment of the apostles, and that's why they got some other godly guys to, to do the work of the ministry and to help those widows get well-fed, and, 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 um, but, but they weren't gonna allow themselves to be distracted and get off point from what God had called them to do. And in fact, I think the two primary ways that pastors and elders equip believers to serve the Lord uh, in various ministries is by preaching to them, the word, 2 Timothy 3, 17, talks about how the word, uh, uh, you know, equips us for every good work, uh, and then also to pray for them. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, uh, the author prayed this, that the Lord would equip you in every good thing to do his will. You've heard me use this analogy before, I think, that uh, we view ourselves as a pastoral team, uh, as a pit crew. Um, I know this is, you know, we're the South, NASCAR's a big thing, we can relate to this analogy, but, uh, you know, you're out there, you know, driving around the track all week, you know, and your, your windshield's getting all messed up with stuff, and, uh, you know, your, your tires are getting bald, and, and uh, you know, you're, you're running low in fuel, so what do you do? You come in a pit, they pull in on Sunday morning, come in. Pit stop, right? And then what do we start doing? We start taking your tires off, taking tires off. You know, we're, we're putting gas in, we're giving you a new windshield, right? And then we're shooting you back out on that track, right? So you can race for another week. The point is, is a, a driver doesn't exist to make the pit crew look good, right? The pit crew exists to help the driver win the race. In a similar way, you don't exist to make me look good or to make me successful, I exist to make you successful in your service to the Lord. And I think this, these first two verses really shatter the popular model in many churches where the pastor is kind of put up on a pedestal above the people. In fact, in some churches, not many today, but the, the pastors will actually sit up on the stage, right? Like they're above everyone else. And I you know, I try to visually communicate by where I stand and sit that I'm not above you, I'm one of you. We're all on the same level serving together and when I step up here uh, into the pulpit in the, the middle of the service, I'm simply using the gift that God has given me to serve this church to equip you to use your spiritual gift. It's what was referred to as the priesthood of all believers. Are you familiar with that expression? The priesthood of all believers it really came out of the Reformation because as the church grew, 
um, there was a division developing between the, the priests and the people. And it got to the point where the priest was the only one who read the Bible. He was the only one that took communion. He's the only one that did the work of the ministry. And so the people just kind of showed up and watched him do his thing. And even though Martin Luther and, and the other reformers confronted this unbiblical thinking, uh, I think churches and, and Christians have a tendency to fall back into that uh, wrong thinking. And so they hire a church staff to do the work of the ministry, and they come to church to watch them and to critique them, and when they get asked to, to do something, they say, hey, that's what we pay you for. Well, God never intended the ministry of a church to revolve around one man or even a group of professional pastors that are financed by a bunch of lay spectators. His plan is for all of us to be involved in the work of the ministry. And so I just uh, shared this uh, with our new members uh, that uh, we finished up our new members class this last week and I challenged them. I said, hey, listen, find a ministry. Get plugged into a ministry. We don't, want, we don't need any more pew potatoes here at Lakeside Bible Church. We want people that are gonna come and serve. And I said, every one of us should think when we're coming to church on Sunday morning, I'm coming to worship and I'm coming to work. You're like, wait a minute, pastor. You're coming to work. This is my day off. I'm coming to sit and soak in right? No, you're, you, you need to think about, I'm coming to worship, but I'm also coming to work. I'm coming to serve. Why? Because God has given each one of us a spiritual gift or gifts to serve in some capacity within the body of Christ. And it's the job of the pastors to help every member discover and develop their gifts and use them to build up the body. And that's what he says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. The idea here is that of building a house. He's already used that analogy in chapter two, verse 19, about God's household here. And, and rather than building up a church, too often churches get torn down by people who stand around criticizing and complaining about everything. Well, I think the best way to solve that problem is to get everybody so involved, they're so busy serving, they don't have time to stand around and gripe about stuff. And so, mark of a healthy church is equipped members. Gifted leaders, equipped members. Number three, doctrinal unity. Doctrinal unity. Notice verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So we're supposed to be building up the body of Christ through our spiritual gifts until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That word attain there means to reach and was used to describe a, a traveler arriving at their destination. So the, the, what, what Paul was saying is the destination that we are going towards is the unity of the faith, reaching a place where everyone agrees on the essential elements of the Christian faith. That is the, the, that's what that word faith means. It's the body of truth that one must believe in order to be saved. Uh, it's the faith once for all delivered of the saints, Jude 3. We're gonna get there hopefully uh, in the next couple of months or so. But uh, the, the point is the Holy Spirit delivered doctrinal truth to the church through the inspired writings of the apostles. And so the early church recognized a, a, a basic set of doctrines that they would study and guard and pass on to others. And so as a body of believers systematically studies the scriptures 
in a verse-by-verse fashion, they get to the place where they all believe the same thing about the Bible and about God and about the Holy Spirit and about sin and about salvation and about sanctification and about heaven and hell. And at the same time, they develop the wisdom and the discernment to defer to one another when it comes to secondary non-salvific issues like eschatology, like whether you're covenantal or you're dispensational or whether you send your kids to public school or you choose to homeschool your kids or whatever kind of oils you think are essential to your life and everyone else's life in the world, right? It's that kind of stuff, right? That, those are secondary issues. They don't matter, but we have the wisdom and the discernment to say, hey, we're not going to cross uh, swords over that and we're not going to divide ways over that, part ways over that. So true unity is achieved within a church when they experience a oneness based on common doctrinal convictions. Notice I didn't say personal preferences, right? But doctrinal convictions. We might have a lot of different personal preferences that that are secondary, but we should have the same common doctrinal convictions. So doctrinal unity is a mark of a biblically healthy church. Number four, conformity to Christ. Conformity to Christ, notice verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That word knowledge there, uh, epignosis in the Greek is that word we've been learning about in First and Second Peter where it's not just an intellectual knowledge but an experiential knowledge. In other words, that being a Christian is not just knowing about Jesus but it's knowing Jesus in an intimate, personal way. Like Paul talked about in in, uh, Philippians chapter three when he said, I want to know Christ and share in his sufferings. He wanted to be like Jesus. And Paul describes that as a mature man, fully grown, completely developed, literally perfect. Now, none of us are going to achieve perfection, right, until we get to heaven. But we are expected to pursue perfection. That's what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus Christ is that perfect standard that we're to measure ourselves against. Don't fool yourself to think you are more spiritually mature than you are by just comparing yourself to the person sitting next to you, right? That we typically compare ourselves to one another, We should make it our goal, right, to compare ourselves to Christ and become as much like him as possible while we're here on this earth until the day when we actually see him and we'll be made, what, like him. And so the way Paul describes this to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, essentially what he's saying there is is Christ-likeness is synonymous with spiritual maturity. What does spiritual maturity look like? It looks like Jesus, So the more like Christ you are, the more spiritually mature you are. And that was Paul's passion. According to Colossians 1.28, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete or perfect in Christ. So conformity to Christ, a mark of a healthy, biblically healthy church. Number five is spiritual discernment, spiritual discernment. Notice verse 14. As a result, in other words, as a result of being built up and growing and maturing in our relationship with Christ, we are no longer to be children 
tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And so as we grow and mature in our relationship with Christ, we will no longer be immature children who are easily swayed by false teachers and false doctrine. I mean, if you have children, you know this, right? Or grandchildren, they're, they're gullible, right? They, they believe anything you tell them. It's, it's easy to, to deceive them or, or to trick them. And they tend to be very fickle, right? They're, they're interested in something for a few minutes and they're off to something else and they're off to something else. And too many Christians today, I think, are just like that. They're easily influenced by the latest book and they're chasing after the, the latest fad in the church and they get blown and tossed around in every direction by, by winds and waves, and, and which, by the way, is symbolic of confusion and turmoil. Their life is in constant turmoil. Do you know people like that? Because they're not grounded. They're not anchored in the truth. They've never been trained to discern truth from error, and so they're easy prey for false teachers who intentionally lead people astray from the truth, and they use trickery, it says, which is the word in the Greek, kubia, where we get the word cube, where we get the word dice, so false teachers are playing with loaded dice here. They disguise error to look like truth. They mix in just enough truth to make it sound right. And so it's easy to become impressed with their passion, their, their charismatic personality, their persuasive speech, but we need to develop the skill to recognize them as false teachers. John MacArthur, who's written a lot about discernment over the years and who has been very discerning over the years, said this, and I quote, no group of believers has fallen into more foolishness in the name of Christianity than the church today. Despite our unprecedented access to God's word and sound Christian teaching, it seems that every religious huckster can find a ready hearing and financial support from among God's people. He says the number of foolish, misdirected, corrupt, and even heretical leaders to whom many church members willingly give their money and allegiance is astounding and heartbreaking. And that's why it's so important that we as a church teach sound doctrine so that you won't be deceived by the many false teachers around today. So, spiritual discernment. Number six, authenticity. Another mark of a healthy church, a biblically healthy church, is authenticity. Notice verse 15, but speaking the truth in love. Literally, truthing. Communicating truth through our lips and through our lives. In contrast to false teachers who promote error and deception and hypocrisy, and they, do, they say one thing and they do another. We, on the other hand, should be marked by truthfulness and integrity, or the word I chose to use, authenticity. We should deal truthfully with one another. We shouldn't be fake or hypocritical, but real, genuine, and honest. Verse 25, just go down a few verses there. Verse 25 of chapter four. Therefore, Paul says, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of one another. In other words, you're lying to yourself if you're lying to another member of the body. Listen, we should never have to guess or wonder where we really stand with one another. I mean, have you ever been in a situation like that where you just kind of feel weird or awkward around someone? 
whether it's a family member or a neighbor or a coworker or a classmate, and worse, somebody in the church. And if that's the case, it's because somebody's not being honest or truthful. I think one of the marks of a healthy church is that people have the maturity to lovingly confront one another and also receive loving confrontation without getting offended. Paul Tripp's written a lot about this in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, also his new book, Lead. And he says that, listen, this, this kind of stuff requires transparency, but also humility. And it also requires that we are willing to have an uncomfortable relational moment from time to time. Where you just, it's the elephant in the room and somebody's gotta bring it up, right? It might be an awkward moment, but listen, the person who tells you you have a booger in your nose, he's the person that really loves you. We were standing in the, the green room or the pastor, the, the prophet's study, they call it there, uh, at the church last week, and the guy who was up next to preach, he was getting his mic on, and, and, and the, the pastor of the church looked down and said, hey, but your, 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 your fly's down. <laughs> and I said, that's true love, right there. Right? You know the guy who's going to tell you right, that awkward. It's kind of awkward to have to say things sometimes, but that shows that you love them more than you love yourself. Proverbs 27, verse 5, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 28, 23, he who rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. You know the difference between flattering and gossiping? Gossip is saying something behind a person's back that you would never say to their face. Flattery is saying something to a person's face that you'd never say behind their back. Spurgeon said it so well, and this is what he taught his uh, young preachers uh, in his uh, pastor's college this is from his book, Lectures to My Students. He said, quote, I thank God I can say this. There is no member of my church, no officer of the church, and no man in the world to whom I'm afraid to say before his face what I would say behind his back. Under God, I owe my position in my own church to the absence of all policy and the habit of saying what I mean. In other words, the reason why I stayed so long at this church, Spurgeon said, is because I didn't play politics. And I didn't say one thing to someone and something else to somebody else. I, I said what I meant, and I spoke the truth. And he said this, if you say one thing to one man and another to another, they will one day compare notes and find you out, and then you'll be despised. And so his rule should be our rule, and that is that we should never say anything about anyone that we wouldn't say to their face. And I'm the product of the dynamic atmosphere where truth is spoken in love and it really had a, a dynamic impact on my spiritual growth. When I was at Grace Community Church, for example, for the first time, rather than getting attaboys all my life, and that's what I got all the time, attaboys, 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 uh, you're gonna do this, you're gonna be this, right? Somebody sat me down in their office and said, Ken, you know what, you're prideful. And I honestly had a hard time receiving that because no one had told me that before. 
And, and uh, I, I kind of pushed back a little bit and said, well, well, really, it must just be your perception of me because nobody's told me that before. Well, I had to go home and really evaluate that loving, uh, that faithful wound of a friend. And uh, guess what? He was right. And I came back and thanked that guy for taking me to the woodshed and, and telling me like it was and uh, speaking into my life in a, in a very direct but loving way. You can't grow, right? You can't become more of who God wants you to be like Jesus if you don't have those kinds of conversations. So authenticity, number seven, we're almost there, submission to Christ's authority. Submission to Christ's authority. Notice he says, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So Christ is the head of the church. Uh, Paul mentions it in chapter one, Verse 22, chapter 5, verse 23, the point is the head is the most important part of the body. Every part of the body is dependent on the head. The head controls and rules the entire body. So Jesus Christ has absolute authority and control and rule over the church. Listen, I'm not in charge around here. The elders aren't in charge around here. Christ is in charge around here. That's a healthy church that that gets that, understands that. But at the same time, the New Testament clearly teaches that Christ mediates his rule through a plurality of godly men who serve as his under-shepherds, as pastors and elders. And their job is to do what Christ wants them to do, not what they want to do or what the congregation wants them to do. And so this is something we need to be reminded of because we're Americans and we love the the democratic process where we elect representatives, right? People to represent us in government to kind of get our wishes accomplished or our thoughts, whatever, made known. Uh, Listen, elders and pastors are not representatives of the congregation. They're representatives of Christ. It's not like we vote these elders in and, and say, okay, they're gonna represent you know, my constituency over here. No, we represent Christ. And we need to submit our hearts and our minds and our wills to Christ and seek his will through prayer and the study of God's word. And listen, God has one will. And that's why we as pastors and elders are committed to unanimity when we make decisions. That's just the key to staying unified as elders. And if we can't stay unified as elders, how, how could we expect the whole church to stay unified. So, submission to Christ's authority. Number eight is a spirit of cooperation. Another mark of a, of a biblically healthy church, a spirit of cooperation. Verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself. So God designed each part of our bodies to work together in perfect harmony to cause us to grow strong and healthy. Each individual part performs a specific function that contributes to the growth of the whole body. And when one part doesn't do what it's supposed to do, the rest of the body's affected and you end up in the hospital, usually, right? That's what happens. Something broke. Something's not working right. Let's get that fixed so we can restore health to the entire body. Well, in the same way, when one of us doesn't do our job, guess what? Everyone else suffers. What you do affects me, and what I do affects you, and what we do affects one another. The church is a living organism made up of a bunch of different people with different gifts that are perfectly coordinated together for the growth of the whole body. 
And as each individual person grows, the entire church grows, and we can't grow to become all that God wants us to be apart from the church, and the church can't grow to become all that God wants it to be apart from us. We all need each other. So, a spirit of cooperation. And then lastly, number nine, the final mark of a biblically healthy church is love. Love, notice that last phrase. He already said, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, and then he says, causes the growth of the body for the building up of self in love. So love is could be likened to the circulatory system of the body. It's the blood that freely and spontaneously flows through every member of the body of Christ. We should sacrificially serve one another and sincerely strive to meet each other's needs. Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By the way, that's what we're going for most in our grow groups. I mean, there's a lot of things we do in grow groups, right? We care for one another. We study God's word together. We hold one another accountable. We pray for one another. But all that should be a reflection of our love for one another. And so hopefully you look forward to your grow group. Why? Because you love those people. And when, and when you have to skip or you miss or you get sick or it's off for the summer, like you don't like that, right? Because you love those people and you enjoy being around those people. So love is the goal. Why? Because love believes the best and covers the rest. Did you hear that? Love believes the best and covers the rest. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love believes all things. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We're not talking about sweeping sin under the rug, right? Turning the other way. I didn't see that. No, but, but somehow love has to uh, be the lubricant, right? That, that keeps your marriage going, right? A, a marriage between two sinners, who are sinning against each other on a daily basis. Um, and, and, and it's the lubricant that keeps the church going where you got 500 people, 500 sinners who are sinning against each other on a regular basis, right? There's gotta be love going on there. Believing the best and covering the rest. So how are we doing? Are we a healthy church or are we an unhealthy church? How about we give ourselves a quick spiritual checkup? Just like a doctor, right? You go to, for a checkup and they ask you, you fill out this form, right? You check off some things or, or they ask you some questions, right? So based on this text, let me ask ourselves some questions to help us determine how healthy we are as a church. You ready for this? Number one, does our church have godly gifted men in leadership positions who are lovingly leading and faithfully feeding the flock? Please don't answer out loud. That would be embarrassing if you said no, right? The point is, think about this, all right? Number two, are people in the process of discovering and using their spiritual gifts to serve the rest of the body? Number three, is every member actively involved in some area of ministry? Number four, are we experiencing greater unity and fewer divisions and learning to defer to one another as we study the scriptures together? Number five, are people's lives changing so they are more and more like Christ? 
Number six, are we becoming more spiritually mature? Number seven, are we growing in our understanding of God's word so that we can discern truth from error? Number eight, are we a people of integrity who practice what we preach? Number nine, is there a mutual commitment to give and receive loving confrontation? Number 10, is everyone submitting to Christ's authority in their life and to the authority he has entrusted to the pastor and elders of our church? Number 11, is there a team spirit of cooperation where everyone does their part for the good of the whole? And lastly, number 12, is there genuine love and concern expressed towards one another in our church? If we can answer yes to these questions, that's an indication that we are a healthy church. And if we can't answer yes to one of these or more questions, that is an indication of where we need to excel still more. Are you with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be stirred up by way of reminder of a familiar text, by a familiar text, but just to examine and evaluate the health of this church. We desire to be a biblically healthy church um, because we know that's when you will receive the most glory and uh, Christ will be most powerfully and beautifully reflected to one another, but also to a lost and dying world who desperately needs to see Christ and to know Christ. So Lord, would you grant us grace to be this kind of church that Paul described in this passage for your glory we pray and for the, the, the name of Christ to be advanced. We ask this in his name, amen. All right, well, hey, before you scatter, we have one other great opportunity together. There's been a lot going on this morning, but uh, we have 19 new people that are gonna be joining Lakeside Bible Church today. So I'm gonna call out their names, and as I do, if you wouldn't mind coming up here, and we've already done this once in first service, so we're gonna do it again uh, right now. So uh, Sean and Suzanne Ayers, Kwong and Carol Duong, Karis Harhoff, Fayez and Dira Nazri, Daisuke and Marsha Okada, Scott Reister, Victoria Sarandis, Mauricio and Lorena Sorto, Brianna Steyer, Nathan and Sabrina Strickland, Zach and Grace Tony. Now, Grace is sick today, and so Zach's home caring for his wife. I told him they're still good, they're in. All right, but uh, they were sad they couldn't be here. And then Sonia Watkins, Sonia Watkins. We just finished uh, three weeks uh, on Wednesday nights together of our Life at Lakeside class, and uh, we have spent time getting to know these folks, and all of them have written out a very clear testimony of their love for Christ. We're confident that they know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and uh, they're excited about committing and covenanting with us uh, as a church family. And so I'm gonna invite you guys to turn and face me and uh, I'm gonna ask you some questions and you can just respond by saying we will. Uh, as a member of Lakeside Bible Church, will you protect the unity of this church by acting in love towards others, by refusing to gossip and by following the leaders? We will. will you share the responsibility of this church by praying for its spiritual growth, by sharing the gospel with unbelievers and warmly welcoming those who visit? Will you serve the ministry of this church by discovering your gifts and talents, by being equipped to serve by the pastors and elders, and by developing a servant's heart? We will. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Just, just That was the message, right? Number four, will you support the testimony of this church by attending faithfully, by giving regularly, and by living a godly life? We will. 
Amen. Let me pray for y'all. Father, thank you for these precious folks for whom Christ died. They're precious to Christ. They need to be precious to us. I pray that uh, we as leaders would do a great job uh, shepherding uh, these folks' souls as those who will have to give an account. Lord, that the rest of this body would assimilate them, uh, these new members, uh, into their lives, uh, that there would be no clickiness, uh, clickishness in our church that would somehow make it difficult for these new folks to, to fit right in. I pray that these folks would um, be a tremendous blessing to us, we would be a blessing to them, that you would cause their spiritual life to thrive um, while they're here at Lakeside Bible Church, that they would grow more like Jesus than they've ever um, grown uh, in their entire lives. And we'll, we'll pray all this for your honor and your glory. We ask this in his name, amen.